When a chef prepares a grand meal, we know that a great deal of thought has gone into that process. He thinks about each particular dish and each particular course, and as he thinks about it, he thinks not only about the ingredients that go into that particular one, but also how it relates to the other courses of the meal that are to follow. How does the sensation of the palate with one dish then work towards the other? How would the proportions of this one fit with the proportions of the other? How does the meal flow? in other words. He considers issues of which wine would pair well with the meal. And of course, we properly think of a chef as preparing the meal, but when you think about it really quickly, you understand that it's not only one person, one chef who is involved in this process, but any number of people who have contributed to what is being served before you from the farmers to the people who harvest and people who do the distribution of the food, the vintners and perhaps a sous chef who works in the kitchen as well, the dishware manufacturers, the silversmiths, the furniture makers, all of these people, including the teachers of the chef and the chefs that have gone before that chef, all of them are participating in some way in providing this delicious meal that we might enjoy. And the reality is this, the more you know about food, the more discerning your palate becomes through testing and through practice, the more you have the ability to appreciate and to enjoy, to delight in the meal that is set before you and not be someone who's just chowing down on whatever is in front of them, putting more ketchup on whatever dish it is, and eating it. The more you know about food, the more you appreciate the meal. Worship is a feast. The more we know about worship, the more we understand the elements of worship, the flow of worship, what we're trying to do in worship, the more we can enjoy the feast. That's our intention then over today and the next couple of weeks is somewhat to go uh, into the kitchen together and to try and understand what are we doing in worship? What are these various parts of worship in which we're engaged together today? today? There are a lot of great questions that we could ask about worship and the ones that I'm going to address today are ones that could and do fill books. I have many books on my shelf about worship uh, and many of them are each volumes about the questions that I'm going to ask us today. So obviously we can't get to everything, but I think we can get a good flow of some major questions regarding worship. Two questions I'm not going to address today. Question number one that I'm not going to address is why do we worship at all? What's the point of worship? Uh, why are we doing that? And the second question is why do we worship on Sundays? Why do we gather together particularly on the Lord's Day? Those are extremely important questions, and the only reason that I'm not going to be speaking specifically of them today is because I think that we've talked about them, I think I've preached on them in a number of other uh, sermons, and so didn't want to just repeat things that we've talked about before. 
That said, if you got your month monthly newsletter via email or if you pick it up, I did write an article for that's, that's available right now on why worship at all. So you can take uh, that and, and take a look at it and read more about that. So here's the questions that we have for us today. Number one, why do we have a thing called organized worship at all? What's the point of doing this at all? Number two, why is this structured the way it is with the elements that we use in this particular worship service? And number three, what should be our attitude as we approach worship? So let me go through those three. In the first place, why do we have organized worship at all? Why not just worship God wherever we are doing whatever it is we happen to find ourselves doing? Or for that matter, why get together at all? Why not just worship God privately, sincerely, personally, or perhaps if that's too lonely, why not just worship God with our families or perhaps with a couple of close friends? who just sit around in a house together and decide to worship God, to sing some songs and to read scripture together. Why do we do this thing called organized worship? We live in a time, and this is true of, I suppose, all times, but it spikes periodically, and we're in a spike right now, a time where for any number of reasons, there is intense suspicion and skepticism regarding institutions, organizations, any kind of system and authority. That seems to be true whether you're talking about government, whether you're talking about large corporations, law enforcement agencies, court systems, media outlets. And as I reflected on that, uh, of course, we've seen, if you've been paying attention in the news, when you've reflected or listened to the discussions about the whole Brexit question, you've listened to the pundits ponder, what is going on here? Why are people so dissatisfied and throwing off all of these kinds of unions? And you've heard them talking about exactly this, institutional suspicion and doubt. Now, the reality is, that this goes directly to the church as well. It bleeds into the church. When people think of institutions, sometimes simply put, when they think of people in suits and ties, they get suspicious. It seems phony. It seems lacking in authenticity. It doesn't seem to be real. They are systemically corrupt. And it does indeed find its way into the church. So I'm going to give that one, one second. So it bleeds down into the church, whether we'd like it to or not. The reality is the church becomes suspect as well. Anything that is organized, anything that is institutionalized, now, the reality is we may, as a church, have brought some of that on ourselves. You bring it on yourselves with scandals that take place in the church, with leadership failings that take place in the church. So I don't want to just say that it's the society's fault 
that people are suspicious of the church. But the reality is, in either case, through both causes, people become suspicious of things like organizations and like the church, and they wonder if there's any point to it. Couldn't I just do this worship and walk of faith on my own? And frankly, if you're here today, if you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, maybe your 40s, you have suspected exactly this. You have wondered exactly this thing about participation and organization in the context of the church. You've thought maybe this just isn't necessary. The good news for your case, if you want to hold that case, the good news for that case is you can have and find a lot of strong biblical support for exactly that position. God also hates phony worship. He doesn't like it. He hates false prophets. He hates insincere thanks. He hates half-hearted offerings. He hates the idea of people just coming into the church, the offering plate comes around, and they reluctantly put in something when they would rather put in nothing, but they feel guilty, and so they put in something. He hates that stuff too. So if you're suspicious, God sometimes is suspicious about what is going on with worship also. But here's the difference, I think, or one of the differences, between God and contemporary culture. While God condemns duplicity and hypocrisy, he in fact upholds institutions and organizations that he has established. He calls for constant reform within and not abandonment of the organizations and institutions that he has established. So, for example, all of us have been probably around part of vast familial dysfunction. You've been around, you've seen marriages that fall apart. God's call, God's response to that is not, well, let's scrap marriage. Let's do something else because marriage is a bad idea. Instead, it is a call to faithfulness within marriage, to love within marriage. There's any number of places we could go in Scripture to consider this. I'm going to only choose one, the Corinthians. For the Corinthians, they had their worship services, and the reality is that their worship services were a mess. If you want to read through the book of Corinthians, the worship services are identified by the phrase, when you come together. When you come together, that is, when you arrive together in worship, you're doing all sorts of things that are awful. They were feasting at the Lord's Supper. They were gorging themselves, trying to be first in line. They were playing one-upmanship with the gifts that they had. They were using worship as an opportunity to show off the gifts that God had given to them. They were talking on top of one another, and they were not respecting God-given authority in the church. Paul then spends a lot of time trying to instruct them about how one should conduct oneself when you come together as a church, as the people of God. And he provides for us two statements, and these are right out of Scripture, two statements 
that for us are clarifying to exactly what we are doing right now. Here's statement number one. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul doesn't want to see confusion in worship services. He wants to see peace. And the second, all things should be done decently and in order. These are not just general statements. These are not, they might have application to the rest of life. But Paul is talking about organized worship services that the Corinthians are engaged in. They should be done decently and in order. God is pleased with orderly, organized, corporate worship. He calls his people to be together. He doesn't abandon it even when it goes horribly wrong, which it did in Corinth. And that leads us naturally to the next question, which is, okay, very good. God says you should organize worship. Well, how do you do it? What's the order of worship? Why is it structured the way it is with these particular elements that we use? For a moment, allow me to set up a straw man type argument just to illustrate a point. Many of you in this congregation do really interesting things, really wonderful things that are uh, talents that you have, gifts that you have, things that you've developed, skills that you've developed over the course of your lives. Some of you dance really well. Some of you are particularly theatrical. Some of you are adept at uh, painting and making furniture. Now, this is a straw man, but why isn't that our worship? Why don't we say that those things that you do particularly well, let's bring them all together in a particular place, and for a moment, let's assume the best motives of everybody. We're doing all of the stuff that we do. Solo Deo Gloria, so you can write SDG on whatever it is that you've done, and you can say that. And we have, in effect, a talent show before God where we've brought the best of what we do together. It would be, in essence, I don't, I don't mean to make fun of a story, like the worship of the little drummer boy. Okay, what do I have to bring? I'll, I'll bring my drum. I'll play my drum for him. Well, you can play your drum for him. You can do any of those things. Why isn't that the pattern that we have for worship? Now, to be sure, we should glorify God in all things and in all of those areas and talents that I just mentioned. But organized worship is a different thing. It is not everything. It is not all things. Organized worship is a particular thing, and what you do in it is particular. I don't mean to be crass with this, but there are many things that we do in the world and in other spheres that you naturally know that doesn't come into worship. It belongs to a different sphere. The relationship between a husband and a wife and what you do in that relationship is good and wonderful and a gift from God, but you don't bring it in to this thing called worship, called corporate worship. They are different things, both good, that's fine, but different things. That helps us to understand some things. That helps us to understand that what we are doing right now is not designed to be familiar to the world or 
appealing to the world or that which comes naturally in life, just automatically taking place. What we are doing right now, if the world comes in and they sit down and they watch what we're doing right now, what they would find it to be, in the words of Daryl Hart, are two things. Odd, well, I guess it's the same thing, odd and weird. This is weird to the world, what we're doing right now, what, what, what I'm doing right now, spouting off. What you're doing right now, listening to me spouting off. That's odd to the world. It doesn't make sense, and it shouldn't. It's not designed for the world. It's not designed by God for the world. This is the place where we honor our King and our Father as He has appointed. Not as we create, not with the ideas that we come up with to bring into worship, but in the way that He has described for us, in the way that is pleasing to Him. Parentheses. Wonderfully and inevitably, our worship includes expressions of our culture. So you have printed Bibles in your hand. There's a printed bulletin that was given to you. I'm using at the moment a wireless mic, instrumentation that is available to one culture and not to another culture or preferred in one culture or another culture. The way that we are dressed right now is culturally defined. The way that I speak, the expressions that I use, the way that we sing, the things that we sing, these are all part of the culture that God has created into the world and that grows up. But in the midst of these cultural circumstances, and these cultural circumstances, we ought to think about them carefully in light of the principles of the Word of God. So we think about those. But within the midst of that, there is nevertheless a core. There are essential elements of worship and worship structure that transcend any particular culture and are at the heart of biblical God pleasing worship, God-ordered worship. But here's the problem. Edmund Clowney, a theologian writer that uh, uh, I know a number of us really enjoy Edmund Clowney. Here's the problem that he notes. The New Testament doesn't contain anything like the book of Leviticus. So, you know, if we lived in the Old Covenant, it would have been a pain to live in the Old Covenant. It would have been difficult to live with all of those laws, but at least in Leviticus it was spelled out what you should do, how you should approach God, how you should bring a particular offering. But that is not there. And when you add to that the complexity of transitioning between Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship, and we know that there are changes between Old Covenant and New Covenant worship because Christ has fulfilled many of the very things that were commanded in the Old Covenant for worship in anticipation from Him, of Him, we get a sense of the difficulty of saying, okay, what are those core elements? 
what are the things that we retain from Scripture as the core. The reformers saw this problem as well. They saw the issue and they said, okay, in order to identify what should be at the core of worship, we're going to have to go back to the Word of God, we're going to have to look through the history of the church and say, these are the essential, the core elements. And when they did that, and they looked at the contemporary worship services of their day, the places where they worship, they said, I can't make these two things match. I can't match what I'm finding in the Bible with what I am experiencing in church. And I will tell you something, that as I, I, I warned you a couple of weeks ago, this is going to be more polemical than some uh, of our other sermons, because it has to be. But when I go to visit other evangelical churches, I sometimes feel the same way. I don't recognize what it is that you are doing at this particular time that's sometimes called a service or a worship service. The good news for us is that we do have the Bible. We do have church history. We do have the confessions of the church that help to guide us into what are the proper elements that are pleasing to God. Now, to be sure, clearly and thankfully, we have more freedom in the New Covenant to worship than was present in the Old Covenant. We have more freedom because of the work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit of God that allows us to worship confidently and to come into the presence of God. Praise God for that, but it is not a free-for-all. The fact that we have more freedom doesn't make worship a free-for-all. Chefs have gone before us, and the elements of worship are clear. They are these, the reading and the preaching of the Word of God, the administration of the sacraments, prayers, singing, presenting offerings, confessing the faith, and on special occasions, oaths, vows, and thanksgivings. Those are the things that are pleasing to God. Mind you, they are not the only things that exist in this world. They are not the only things that are delightful that God has created in this world. That's not the point. The point is that when you come together for organized worship, those are the elements that are pleasing to God. No need to be inventive, no need to create any more than what God has given to us. And while there is some freedom in arranging these elements in combining them in certain ways, the principle that should undergird how we arrange them is that all things should be done decently and in order, not not haphazardly. And so, 35 minutes of rock concert-style praise music and I like rock, that's parentheses. I like rock music, this is not a statement about rock. But 35 minutes of rock style music where you cannot hear the person next to you, in front of you, behind you, because the music is being blasted out and people in front are singing loudly with microphones, 
35 minutes of that, with a couple of pieces of scripture thrown in, and a few prayers that are done with soft background guitar music, and a 10-minute devotion on how you can have better friendships or a better work environment, does not a worship service make. Does it have elements? Sure, it has a couple of elements. But it is not a worship service. At least it is not an acceptable worship service. And many churches today have frankly abandoned the entire idea of a worship service. This is a celebration service. We do it so that people will come in and be interested in the gospel. No. What we do when we are gathered together is governed by God seeking to be pleasing to him. If you're here today and you're visiting with us, I hope you're challenged and I hope you find it weird. Ask us about it. Talk to us about it. We all found it weird at one point as well in our lives. The order of a worship service sometimes follows what has been called a biblical logic or a gospel logic. I think the best way to understand actually what we're doing here today is to understand it in the sense of covenantally logic. That's the way our worship service is structured. And let me just give you an example. I know Tommy talked about the call to worship last week. Let me just start at the beginning with our worship service just for a moment. I'm not going to work through the whole thing. So there's a call to worship. It's not just that I randomly go, hey, I'm going to pick out a psalm, and I open up the psalter, and I go, here, this is what we're going to use as we start up our worship service today. It is specifically a call to worship. So, for example, a lot of good psalms, two that you are familiar with that are great psalms, are Psalm 1 and Psalm 37. I've never used them as calls to worship. You know why? Because they're not calls to worship. They're wisdom psalms. They are terrific psalms to be read at various points. But the call to worship is a place out of Scripture wherein God and His people are calling, being called to worship. So as we read it from the Word of God, it is God speaking, and in this case today, it is people saying to one another, come, let us worship. The King has called us in, let's come together in worship. That's how that is developed. And then what happens as you move along through our worship service is this kind of covenantal dialogue that goes back and forth between God and us as his people talking to one another. There are cycles that work through here. Uh, there are cycles of praise followed by cycles of confession followed by times of, uh, of God giving to us the means of grace through prayer or through a sacrament or through the preaching of the word, and then God blessing us. And we work through that cycle a couple of times in our worship service. It follows a covenantal pattern by which God is praised and we, his people, receive his blessing. And as I, we arrange, as I arrange the morning or Tommy the evening, we seek to arrange these parts in a way that flows with one another. And again, let me just give you the example of the call to worship this morning. The call to worship this morning isn't just, well, just, it's not just randomly created. It is a particular call to worship because the theme of the service today is worship. I'm sorry, I know that sounds redundant uh, to, be, to be saying it like that. But I chose it because it connects with the theme of worship, as has the hymnody that has gone through this service as well. The more you realize that, the more you can enter into what is going on in a worship service. It's not just one thing after another. 
it's thematically connected with how God is going to unfold the word for us. Now, I have to say something here. I have to acknowledge something. I know I'm very well aware of the fact that it sounds like I'm touting our church today. I'm touting our church today. Uh, not because I developed this structure of worship. It's been handed down. I came here almost six years ago. It'll be six years, uh, I guess September is an official start date. It'll be six years. And I haven't tinkered with the worship service. I mean, there's a few little changes that we've made. We used to sing two hymns together at the beginning. Now we spread them out more in the worship service. So I'm not taking any even credit for what this worship service looks like. I'm just explaining the tradition that has been handed down and the reason why it's a good and faithful representation of the way that God deals covenantally with his people. So I, I, please, I'm, I'm really not trying to take any credit for it just to explain that which we have. Of such, such worship, we can say three things. Number one, you can say that that kind of worship is pleasing to God, at least it's pleasing to God in the form. We'll come to attitudes in just a moment. Number two, you can say of this kind of worship, it is simple. There is a simple elegance to this kind of worship that, as I've said in other sermons, in addition to other things, makes it eminently, eminently transportable. You can take it to a lot of places very easily because it's a very simple and clear thing. Third, it will be a blessing for us to worship this way because that is what God has promised. We give to him and he blesses us. Now, I'll, I'll throw in a fourth for you, just one other thing. When we worship in this way, you might say that sounds really restrictive. It actually secures your freedom. It secures your freedom of conscience so that neither I nor the session say to you, we're going to worship in some way that is not appointed in the word of God. All of us, find our submission to God, the freedom of conscience is when I don't and the session doesn't force you into worship in some way that's not ordained in the Word of God. I'm going to say a message. It's not so much to you. But if anybody happens to pick this up online, to the evangelical world, to the Presbyterian world, to the PCA world, my plea pastorally would be stop fidgeting and fiddling with the tradition of worship that has been handed down to us. Stop it. There's one more question, and I know, and I'll be really brief with this last question. I, I promise you I'll be brief with it. What is the proper attitude in worship? The form can be right, but what about the heart? If you know anything about your Bible, you know that God doesn't want form without heart. So what attitude should be ours as we come together in worship. And here, before we think of ourselves, we've got to think of God. As simply as I can say it, as you come into worship, two ideas about God must be in your mind. One, the transcendence of God, and two, the imminence of God. You must keep those two things in mind as you come into worship. The transcendence of God is to refer to the fact that God rules above all. He is the great king, the high and almighty God who rules over all things, the creator. The imminence of God is the nearness of God, the fact that he is our father. 
that Jesus Christ became incarnate, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Transcendence and imminence. If you forget about the imminence of God, the nearness of God, you will create worship or you will experience worship that is formal. It's very strict, it's very formal, but there is no touching of the heart that takes place in that worship. If, on the other hand, you forget about the transcendence of God and emphasize the imminence of God, which is, frankly, the evangelical tendency of our day, then you will create worship that is comfortable. Worship where there are nice sentiments about friendliness and happiness and casualness. We need transcendence and imminence in our thinking about our attitude. Now, if you want one verse in Scripture that describes the attitude with which we approach God, and there are many, not just one, it is the one that we've read earlier in the service. This is not talking about Old Covenant worship. This is talking about New Covenant worship. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. With reverence and with awe. That's the attitude with which we ought to approach this great God. And the writer of Hebrews says, offer to God acceptable worship. You know what the implication of acceptable worship is? There's unacceptable worship. When you don't approach God with reverence and awe, you can't think. You can't think, well, God will just receive everything, anything. Anything I offer to him, he'll be happy with. No, there is acceptable worship and there's unacceptable worship. That's hard to conceive of. We, we think of God as more kindly than that but there's acceptable and unacceptable. It's acceptable when you worship God with reverence and with awe, when you have the right attitude. Uh, and I'm not going to go into it, but isn't it interesting in that Nehemiah passage where they're listening to this explanation of the law of God and they're weeping, and they're apparently weeping and wailing, and Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites kind of go, wait a minute, that's the wrong attitude right now. That's the wrong application of this. This is supposed to be a joyous celebration that we're doing right now. Stop it. Stop crying. Stop weeping and rejoice because God is our salvation. He's our rock. Go home and eat and drink and, uh, and enjoy your God and give to others who haven't prepared something for the day. Other uh, attitudinal words from Scripture, from the Book of Church Order, thankful, joyful, faithful, uh, sincerely, seriousness of purpose, devoted. We worship God in the beauty of holiness with confidence, dignity, with humility, and with love. Those are the attitudes that are pleasing to God in worship. All right, I'll pull it together with this. The triune God, the verse that is on the front of your bulletin, the triune God seeks worshipers, which is to say... He seeks guests to come to the wedding feast, which is to say he seeks people who are hungry and who desire to eat of the precious food of worship which he has prepared. In a fast food world, it is hard 
to develop your palate. And the reason that it is hard is the stuff that is offered as food in the world, and I am talking about food and I am talking about worship, is infused with sugars and with salts and with artificial flavorings. And your taste buds explode. They're all confused when all of that stuff comes in and collides on top of them. And they think it's really good. But they're unable to distinguish between the parts of the food. And so teens, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, and for the rest of us as well, who have suspicions about the idea of organized worship, eat real food. Worship in spirit and in truth. It will be glorifying to him, and it will be soul-satisfying to us. God guarantees it. Let's pray.